Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Avery. Avery is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. This episode is in collaboration with KTH, the Center for the Future of Places. And today we have a great story and a great storyteller. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Setha Lowe, to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome. Nice to be here, even though I'm here in New York and uh, way out on the end of Long Island. And I guess you're in Stockholm. Is that true? Yeah, exactly. And now it's almost evening here. What time is it? In New York. Oh, here it's ten uh, forty. Uh, actually, it's one of our. It's March, and um, one of our first kind of almost spring days. It's forty degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you have to translate that for <laughs> yes. everyone. And but the sun is out. There are no leaves or wow, anything. Wow, that's lovely. But, our weather's a lot like Sweden for your listeners. Um, maybe we get a little more snow and you get a little more rain. Just it's a little darker where you yeah. are. So how are you, Setha? I hope you're doing good. I'm good. COVID is a strain, you know. COVID is different. I've gotten actually COVID has really um it's, it provoked me in many good ways to really think about uh, the th- things I'm concerned about, social justice and public space. It's like uh, this, m- the most dramatic thing that will have happened to me in my lifetime. I um, I mean, there have been dramatic things, it's true. 68 in May, I was in Paris, but this is really monumental and global. And I started out as a medical anthropologist. So I started out in Latin America studying health. And I used to wonder about how people live through plagues and how people live through great periods of disease. And I worked in hospitals in countries where people were very sick. So I had never really contemplated how a plague, an epidemic could change everything, especially in the area that we're interested in today, the city and public space. Yeah. And now I would love that you take us even more back and tell us more about you. How would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us about how you grew up, your career. Just give us a highlight about Setha. Okay. So um, I haven't had a very ordinary career in the sense that um, and my message to young people listening to this, you have to kind of go where life leads you because you really don't know what's going to happen. But um, many people would be surprised to know, since I, th- I think I have a New York accent at this point, that I was born in Los Angeles and I am a beach girl as a young person. And um, 
but I never really felt at home on the West Coast of California. I don't know if Swedes know about that or your audience, but it's a place where you're really supposed to be blonde and I'm a brunette and um, a surfer girl like Gidget, it, those, that's the world I grew up in. And to be an intellectual, which I was from very young, I was always interested in things. I would say that um, the most, constant thing about me is tremendous amount of curiosity about the world absolutely from very very young and particularly interest in how psychology or how we feel influences the world and how the world influences back and i originally wanted to study as i was saying um sort of the biological basis of behavior which interestingly now is, you know, something you can really study, it, you know, neuropsychology is really fantastic. But when I was a young person, it meant simply putting an electrode in cat brains. And so that didn't seem very appealing. But I was really interested in this sort of medical world and um, uh, something that was broad. So I began, um, in college as a psychologist, biologist based on this and took, ended up being invited to go to El Salvador, that's in Central America, to be an archeologist with a team of students. And this was 1969. I had already been to Paris and lived in Paris in 68 during the, the days of protest in Paris. I had been very young, you know, I was like 19. I, I, I really mostly just helped other students. I mean, I was so kind of unaware of the politics of the moment and became pulled into it. But by the time I get to Central America in 69 and begin to work on an archeological dig, I did begin to become interested in, in, in inequality and social justice. That's probably the first moment between Paris and El Salvador. Anyhow, archeology span didn't work out. Um, it turns out I'm heat intolerant. And um, when I would dig on the top of a, a post-classic mound, uh, I would pass out. So that, that took care of that career. So I went back to college and finished. Um, but I'd seen enough in El Salvador to become very interested in that there were other people living very different lives. Again, I had seen that in Europe. Uh, it was so different than California. And then I went to El Salvador. So I thought, well, I think I'll see more of the world. And I went to graduate school uh, as a biological anthropologist. I decided I was going to study baboons in Africa. I was going to go and do animal ethology. Again, this interest in behavior. Behavior. You just don't want to stay at home. No, I didn't want to stay at home. <laughs> I definitely wanted to leave California. Um, I didn't fit, you know, and many anthropologists will tell you um, that there are people who somehow didn't quite fit. Mm. As I said, I was a little too intense intellectually, mm. not blonde. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just wasn't, I was too intellectual. And for that kind of culture, I mean, LA is a lot about what you look like, not so much the world of the mind. And um, so I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and was going to go and study baboons. And I wrote a paper 
about how we can understand baboons to understand human behavior better. Again, this big question that's behind Mm. it. And I decided from this paper that you couldn't use baboons to study humans. That in fact, animal models are very flawed. This is still a great debate. Using uh, primate models for human behavior um, really don't answer the questions. And so I just changed fields and became a, as I said, medical anthropologist. I decided I would study people and I would study their biology and health. So that was the first shift. So I go off to Costa Rica where I did my field work. I worked in um, uh, the medical system and in the folk medical system and worked with people in their homes for about 20 months. And at the end, I needed a job. And there weren't any jobs in anthropology at all. So I um, thought I would just stay in Costa Rica. I wasn't really ready to come home. That's a very typical (laughs) anthropology uh, attitude. And I got a call. I was back in a farm, actually, doing some interviews. And I got a telephone call at the main house. And it was this man whose name was Ian McCarg, uh, who was this very famous urban planner and uh, really genius. Uh, who started the ecological planning movement. And he wanted to hire an anthropologist to teach in landscape architecture and regional planning. Now, I didn't even know what landscape architecture was. <laughs> and um, I, did, I did know where Philadelphia was, but, uh, but I didn't really, had never been there. And, uh, but I needed a job, you know, and I, and I said, well, what, what can I, what am I going to be doing there? And he, he said, well, I want someone who will show us how the environment, I believe he said that uh, ecologically sound about, this is, mind you, everyone, about 40 years ago would create better health. That and I want a medical anthropologist who will show us how health comes out of good cities and good planning and good design. He was definitely forward thinking and in fact very popular in the 1970s and then there was this big turn away in the 80s which is why I eventually left the design field but the design fields planning design or particularly urban planning and landscape architecture but also architecture radical kind of radical architecture to some degree were already concerned with building environments that would improve the health mental and physical health of people and the promise of that was not clear the evidence the research had not yet been done but there were people who really believed this and indeed i went to the university of pennsylvania and i taught for 14 years in the design school teaching uh, design students essentially anthropology and little by little that changed me that's why I said I kind of I needed a job. I needed the money. I I was single and I needed a I, I you know, I, I guess I felt I needed to get home. I needed to write my dissertation. I did that during the first two years. I don't recommend it. Um, writing and teaching at the same time. But 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 it had a lot to do with who I am today, that had I not gone to this department, I would never have gotten interested in space and place. I wouldn't have uh, found this avenue 
for understanding the relationship between people in their environment through uh, design, how we understand. And you can see by being in Latin America, I had learned a lot about inequality. I'm not sort of talking about that. But for a, a woman from sort of suburban California to see the kind of poverty you see in Latin America is eye opening. Uh, I actually did go back and work in Guatemala for five years on why some children who are very poor were malnourished and others weren't. I mean, I still had that interest. Um, so so the, I was already doing many things at the same time, but it was teaching for Ian McCark, thinking, uh, uh, trying to satisfy his desire for me to prove that the good environment will produce health. And he is no longer with us, but um, my most recent work on public space does link health and mental well-being, but other forms of flourishing, including democracy and a healthy informal economy to public space. So in a way, I finally answered his, his call. Um, the only thing about teaching in a design school, which I still do, I still teach on the side at Pratt or go down to Penn, was that I was teaching um, students who were not, who wanted to use my knowledge and wanted me to teach the methodology, but I was not replicating myself. And at that time, there were only three anthropologists teach in design schools across, at least in the United States. I don't know that there was one in Canada. I actually don't know about in Europe. There were quite a few in Latin America. Latin America was much more socially oriented in terms of the kind of urban planning they do. They're more Marxist. Um, but, but thinking about the city and including the social sciences was very big in the 70s. But live, and there were a few of us here and there. But what starts happening by the 80s is there's really a change in design. There is a change in to turning back to Beaux-Arts, turning back to models in art. Um, public money kind of dries up because of the economy. I did some research on that. And, pro and the work available was private, large urban projects that had been very popular in the 70s uh, turned into a really private development by the late 80s, as we all know, with neoliberalism and urban restructuring, which I didn't understand at the time, but it was changing the entire landscape of these disciplines. And with that, those of us who are social scientists in the design fields felt that we had less and less impact, less and less purchase on what was happening. Um, and we always thought it would turn around. I just never thought it would take 30 years. And it has turned around. Now, suddenly, there is so much interest in my work and in public space. And for the first time, design schools are thinking again of having social scientists. But in this interim period, social science heavily, except for economics, excuse me, but economics becomes the social science, but anthropology, environmental psychology, geography, even political science to some extent disappears where it had been and the faculty with it. We all left. I, um, 
there was a core at University of Pennsylvania of us who would work together. And little by little, one person went here, one person left there. And I became interested in and concerned that I wasn't replicating myself. By that, I mean, I wasn't training other PhDs to do the kind of research I was doing and to do the kind of in interventions. Because at this point, I'm teaching in studio, just like um, any other faculty member, but usually with a landscape architect, Bob Hanna, Lori Olin, and usually a planner, maybe even an ecologist. And the students have the benefit of all of our perspectives. And I became interested in methodology, which is very prominent. I train students to do their own research in communities and bring back the data and design based on it. So that's that's where they came from. But when when the the turn away from people-based planning or community-based planning happens, I left. And I went to um, the Graduate Center of CUNY, where I still am. I uh, started, was hired by the Department of Environmental Psychology, which was an interdisciplinary department. I was the only anthropologist, but there was two geographers, two psychologists, an architect, two planners. So we were interdisciplinary. And we began, we, I joined them in the training of interdisciplinarily trained social scientists who focused on the built environment to some degree. And that's where I still am. And um, since I've been here, I have changed many times. Um, the thing about the Graduate Center, I think that was the most important um, is that it was really a hotbed of very radical urbanists. It included, it, we still have David Harvey, who is still with us, who's a world famous um, geographer who writes about the city and inequality. Neil Smith, who has passed away, was there. Uh, Sharon Zukin, who is now retired, also writes about, is a sociologist, myself. Cindy Katz, who's a geographer, writes also about these, and, um, and others. And um, so we had this across the disciplines, this, not just were we interdisciplinary inside environmental psychology, and that was very exciting, but across the different departments, little by little, I was in geography and anthropology and women's studies. You could be in all these departments. And as urbanists, we began to really influence one another and write one another and almost created a kind of New York school. Um, in the sense that we were quite political, saw the city as a place for resistance and contestation and protest, um, began to look at public space in this way, wrote critically about the move towards economic restructuring and urban development projects that excluded people and that um, in fact were exacerbating urban inequality. Um, and I fit very well in there, and it influenced um, my writing and um, probably radicalized me more um, and pushed me 
to answer bigger questions than maybe I was addressing while at the at, while at Penn, while at the University of Pennsylvania. Move me from looking at the plaza to looking at the city. Move me from you know fine grain ethnography to trying to understand what that could tell us at a larger scale. Yeah, and you mentioned now, Setha, that you work across sections and universities, but also countries, because tell me now how your story started with the Center for the Future right. of Places. Uh, well, actually, um, it, it, it started, I guess, in 2014, I think, maybe even before, maybe even 2012. You know, the Center for the Future of Places had this fantastic uh, idea through funding from the Axon Johnson Foundation and the setting up of the Center for the Future of Places under Tigran Haas that um, we, and now I, because I'm part of it, but you know, they, we at this, this point, center. Want, the center wanted to influence the up and coming um, new urban agenda for the UN habitat and wanted to have a, a really strong voice that included empirical research. I think that was the critical issue that evidence-based uh, planning and design and re field research, hands-on research, not just quantitative research that we could use to improve the world through influencing the the UN documents, the new end agenda um, of having kind of a global impact using the knowledge that we had and getting it out there. And up to that time, in all honesty, I really had, hmm, I need to step back just a moment. Ian McCarr used to ask me all the time, Setha, I need one method. I need one method that will tell me everything I need to know to plan on and design for everyone. And it was sort of like uh, Christopher Alexander, will your guests know Christopher, uh, pattern language, or Mike, Mike Mahaffey also is interested, a pattern language that will predict and you can design on. Well, anthropologists are not into that at all. And I in particular wasn't. I mean, anthropologists in general tend to want to go to a place, would argue that culture is different, and life is different everywhere, and that, um, that you need to understand, you need to do research to understand how to design for any particular place, that no place are the people the same? Are the cultures the same? Is the environment is the same? Are the structures of meaning the same? Are the political uh, issues the same? Uh, are the structures of inequality, let's say, or even of oppression, let's go, are the same? So any one model would never be enough. And I used to fight, fight, fight with him. And he'd go, oh, my dear, you can do this. And I don't know. Anyhow, I refused to do it. And it was always a really sore thing with us, um, this disagreement. And yet what starts happening, what, what I think it was really all about is I think that I hadn't had enough experience 
to have any confidence that there was anything that we knew collectively that we could use. But what happens up until 2012 in that long period of my career is I did tons and tons and tons of research. I worked all across the United States. I worked in the National Park Service in the US and the state New York system and the city system. I worked in Costa Rica and Panama. I worked in Canada. I worked um, not so much in Europe, but but mostly in what I call the Americas. I always say I'm a new world girl. <laughs> woman, a new world person. And I am, mm. I'm, I'm most comfortable in the new world, the, the, the world that got quote unquote born, which it never was early, uh, late, excuse me. I mean that the history, our history is indigenous and um, very different than Europe. Mm. So how did you get in touch with the center? Well, I think what they did is called me to come and be in a, one of these fantastic meetings that they had. I think that I got a call to come to Buenos Aires and give a talk. I don't know who knew about me. Um, I don't know. I, I guess Tigran found me and, or maybe I called them, but I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. But what happened is I went to the first meeting or the second meeting. I didn't go to the meeting in Sweden. Um, but I did go to the second meeting in Buenos Aires and um, gave a talk. And people really liked that talk a lot. I talked about social justice and threats to public space. And that was the beginning of a relationship. And from then on, they began to include me at, in the panels and the meetings that we had. Um, and at first it was mostly to use the research that I'd already done. And then little by little, we began to plan interventions and research and methodologies and took on, of course, the database project. But the first few years we spent working on the new urban agenda and ultimately ending up in Quito um, and ha having a, a, you know, we had a, this incredible installation where we really talked to people from all over the world about our findings and about um, our, our key concepts. And we wrote a kind of mandate, or I, I think Luisa calls hers a manifesto. I don't know what we called ours, key concepts, but we had certain ideas that we were really uh, putting forward and as a group. And that was really a watershed moment. I th and, uh, and then from there, we went to the World Urban Forum and got bigger and bigger. In the meantime, we also got involved in trying to put together all the social science research and design research that there was on public space. We really began to focus mostly on public space, not just the city in general, and um, began to develop, uh, putting uh, as a group, putting together this database project, which is about to be released, I think, to the public. Yeah, that's lovely. And tell me now about your new book for, to the center, Why Public Space Matters. Tell, tell me about the, the background, why you decide to, to focus on public spaces and so on. Well, I think, you know, I don't know the question to the public spaces, except that when I first went to Latin America, I was always struck by the plazas because everybody was there. 
and talking to one another and it was so lively and so full of interconnections and uh, you could see the whole the whole country would be sort of in a microcosm in these central plazas and i couldn't think of anything like that in the united states i mean i just couldn't I guess I hadn't quite seen anything like that. And I became interested in the history and the archaeology. Remember, I was an archaeologist. So I wrote some papers about um, the history that it's not just a European form, the plaza, but it's an indigenous form. That was an important thing to learn. It was from indigenous peoples as much as it was brought by the Spanish or the you know, and that the but that there was a relationship, a synergy, a kind of urban planning form that happens between the Spanish. So that was the first public space. And I kept going back to the plaza uh, while I was teaching landscape architecture because I wanted to develop a method for Ian. And I felt that here's the place that I knew the culture already and I spoke the language and I had worked in Costa Rica for mm, 17 years. So I could use that plaza as a model for how we could study space in general. And that was my first big intervention. So that, so it wasn't, I had gone to it for methodological reasons, but, but it wasn't until I turned around and did research in gated communities, which was the next big sort of, if you think 15 years to do the plaza and 15 years in gated communities, which are the most private of spaces. And you realize what social relations are like in gated communities, which are terrible and not producing what they want at all and create more fear, not less. And that here we are with more fear of others and here the plaza are, is producing this very kind of open, democ seemingly democratic, I don't want to I'm not trying to romanticize it. So that's where the public space. So then after the gating, then I started large, a study large uh, parks and began to agree with the center. I mean, um, I guess that was their point of view, but I be began to see how my work, my work really just slid right into their work, but I hadn't seen it as such a big framework. But once I got in, I began to realize that public space. So you go all the way to the beginning. Public space produces health and well-being and mental health, which is amazing. All the way to the early early part of my career, all the way back to the end that my medical anthropology pops up or my work on malnutrition and children's socialization in Guatemala. You can see how uh, the public space, in fact, encourages uh, children's socialization in public so that they can learn to be with others and share information and um, learn ways to be healthier and part of the society. So every piece of that early work on malnutrition and child development and health and mental well-being ends up back in why public space matters. Um, I wrote the book the book is still being written. We wish it were done. I must admit that COVID um, definitely offered challenges because COVID changes public spaces in ways that we did not expect. And so I, I was writing, it's sort of half done and COVID comes along and I have to really re reconceive the book in many ways because COVID has shown us that public space matters even more than ever 
or that it also can be frightening and and um, create fear of others. And one of so that needed to be incorporated into it. Um, but I wanted to write something that would take the database, the research I've done, ethnography, which is a different kind these this kind of ethnography of space and place that I had developed through other books that I'd written, and put it together for a public, for a broader public. And probably that's why the book is moving slowly. I haven't written for the public before, so to speak. But I'd like any person who wants, who doesn't, isn't concerned about the closing of a park or the shutting down of streets or um, deciding not to, to allow an open field to be there for soccer, to understand at a very basic level why it matters, why it is the very fiber of cities and underpins so many things that so many goods that connecting people uh, produces uh, a kind of public culture and an atmosphere within which we can flourish in many ways, um, politically, socially, economically. It's a place of work. Psychologically, it's a place of be you know of repose and also being together. And without those spaces, as we've learned during the COVID, um, we don't do as well. And that they are critical for our well-being and that we take them for granted, at least in the United States. I think people take their public spaces for granted make decisions um, about them for granted and the current pressures of privatization and urban development and commercialization and uh, consumption spaces and gentrification, all of these things work against having public spaces where everyone can be. And if we turn our public spaces into gated communities, in a sense, or segregate them in the way, I know where that ends, more fear of others. I know how it ends. Um, so I felt like Why Public Space Matters, which will talk about what public space does, it's positive. It will talk about, I have a section on what the threats are, what the opportunities are, and hopefully tell citizens what they can do about it. Mm -hmm. Are they like case studies inside, uh, diagrams? They're pictures. I'm not a big uh, diagram person. Um, there are some diagrams. There are, I, I have developed a theory of how it is that public space matters, the process. And there's a very important diagram that argues that the real, that we, we all, most of what is written and most of what you hear in journalism is public space is a place that we can encounter strangers. You know, it's a place of contact. And there is this very important contact theory that's now 55 years old that argues that contact, be it in Sweden or the US or wherever it is, Costa Rica, um, that it's liberalizing in the sense of it, it increases tolerance. It actually produces creativity and all kinds of really 
positive qualities, even if you don't talk to everyone, even if you don't engage with them, it has this kind of uh, liberalizing impact on you. You, you, see the, you see a broader world. But I, I've been really fascinated, but how does that get translated into something that changes a city? And a lot of people have written that just contact is enough. And um, I, don't, I don't think that's quite the case. And so one of the diagrams or one of the main ideas is that contact um, needs to produce something I'm calling public culture. And I'm still looking for a better word. If you have one, I would really like it. Anyone out there, I'm still looking for a better world. But what I mean by that is, Think of your local park and think of interacting with people and think of how certain new rules and norms get built over time so that when you go, you have a sense of relationships. And if you want to be really inclusive, this public culture needs to also be built on things like recognition of difference and knowing that some that, that some people aren't going to be using the space the same way you are, but somehow that is okay. And it is a, uh, I'm not saying it's, it's not a rigid thing, but there is this kind of moving, but flexible, but sort of stable sense of how to be together in a place. And I feel that that is the very basis of democracy, of, 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 of inclusiveness, of can be social justice, that without that. So that just contact, while it's liberalizing, unless it begins to take the form of a kind of public culture that then, you know, is part of the entire city, you know, it circulates throughout the city and that it's big enough to include counter publics and, you know, expand the public sphere, it, that that is a very crucial piece and that it, that that's what we're reaching for. And um, I think conviviality is a term that is being used in Europe a lot. I don't know if it needs to be convivial is the thing because it could be about protest. The same kind of public culture occurs when people get together to protest something. There are ways in which we learn to treat each other in Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter. In other words, it isn't always convivial. It could be arguing. It doesn't, in fact, that's probably even more powerful to learn the edges of so we can protest and we can hear each other. And then there's one more piece, which, again, I need a better term, I've called affective atmosphere. And um, taking this a little from Anna Barker, and uh, who's at Leeds, uh, though she doesn't develop it, um, or Ben Anderson, who's a geographer, just for our listeners. Uh, but the idea that that this public culture takes place within a certain kind of atmosphere. And that atmosphere will, in fact, influence what can happen and what cannot happen. And I use the example of you're in the Bronx and the Yankees have played at the Bronx Stadium. I hope I'm not being too New York-centric, but you can imagine. And the, the Yankees win. What is it like in the parking lot in the streets? The streets are full of people honking, people patting each other on the back. They're giving high fives, they're right. They're happy talking to one another, crossing social groups, right? It, it's, you know, the, the, that event 
creates a kind of affective atmosphere within certain within which certain kinds of behaviors and and ways of being with others happen and if they lose what's it like it's quiet nobody says anything everyone walks out separately no high fives no patting on the back just kind of silence right and completely changes and you know all public spaces are like that i mean you can even think bigger during 9 11 how did that change the atmosphere anyhow i'm arguing that those three things come together you said tell you a little more about the book um so that's one of the diagrams is to show how that really um makes a difference but the book is going to have tools the tests the toolkit for the ethnographic study of space um it's going to have cases i guess in the sense um each chapter will have an ethnographic example more than anything the examples and the cases they're not quite cases they're they're summaries of ethnographies that either i've done or my colleagues have done and will show how these ideas how public space translates into these benefits in other words how does it how is it that a space creates health or well-being and i i want to show you people who are in a space who who created a new space and how they're responding to it so you can see how it happens that's really fundamentally what the book is about and seth i i i have a question in my mind now you're you're teaching landscape architecture and uh, teaching your students how to transform data to like concrete elements design elements so what makes a good public space like what is there a, a recipe that create a good public space like what are the elements that makes a good public space i think you know that um i mean project for public space has their own recipe um many of us are trying to be really critical of that because it's a recipe for making money for making a center of the city lively whether or not the recipe for a good public space as far as i'm concerned is one that creates a just a socially just public space and um a socially just public space uh, i have come up and i think it's too hard for a podcast but um i think you need to look at various kinds of justice to know whether you have a good public space and you'll have to ask certain kinds of questions so you might ask under distributive justice is there is there public space for everyone in the city or even within a neighborhood is there public space for everyone who needs public space kind of a distributive justice question so it wouldn't be a perfect good but you'd first ask the question is is there space for everyone or only for some which is what we find um are the ways in which we interact in those spaces is there interactional justice is there recognition of difference is there in this building of public culture are all kinds of uh, cultural norms included and respected um is there care? Can people care for the environment? Can people care for the, each other? 
these are all for me. Are there procedures by which groups can get access to the public space? Is there um, what we call informational justice? Are people told the truth about what's kind of going on? To me, what makes a good public space at this point in my career is not just that it's culturally diverse, which is where I started. It used to be if it's culturally diverse from if everybody is there, if it's really for all, it's a good public space. And that was my answer. I've been criticized for that. But, you know, now I think I have to go further. I, I almost think I'm trying to figure out sort of it's got to have diversity, difference, which means recognition of difference and democracy or social justice. And though, if those three things are there, if there is diversity, recognition of difference, democracy in the sense of the ability to protest, the ability to fight as well as to cooperate, to collaborate as well, that's sort of what I mean by democracy, both at the micro scale and the other, then it's a good public space. Good public space is socially just public space. And from that, everything else will come. Mm-hmm. Now I have you know, in, in, Urbanistica, in Urbanistica podcast, I talk a lot about smart city, future cities, and so on. And lately, we started to see virtual public spaces, you know, the digital when right. you put the, yeah. the... I do. I'm going to teach a class on yeah. it. I'm really yeah. fascinated. So now, I would love to hear from you. What do you think? What is your reflection about these virtual public spaces? Okay. Um, okay, I'm thinking a lot about it. It's and I, as I said, the way I um, work on something is teach a class on it. I'm teaching it in the fall. Right now, I'm teaching something called critical remote ethnography, which is how to study public space, essentially remotely, digitally, but also using photographs and film and Instagram and YouTube, but how to do it critically, how to understand uh, self-representations. Anyhow, I don't know, again, if you're interested in that, I'll go. But let me just say two things. One. Smart public spaces are mostly right now being used in order to implement economic and financial goals, profit making. You mean digital public spaces? Not digital. I'm just saying smart. Uh, uh, Hudson Yards in New York is a smart public space that has all kinds of monitors and technologies in it. I'm starting there, you first did smart, because I think it's what's really important. And I think that smart public space has promise ecologically, like we all hoped. But the truth of the matter is, as long as it's used by developers only for profit-making means and for advertising, then the, the technology will only replicate the same structures of power that were there before the technology. Does that, do you follow me? So where smart technology in public space, in other words, is, is working is where it's really done in the public interest not to gather data or to control or to surveil. So, and I think that's the answer to the smart city. I'm quite concerned about all the surveillance to, and its ends. So 
and and it starts with a public space for me you know i mean i don't have to look at the whole city i can look at hudson yards and i can tell you where the data is going and what they're doing with it and or that they won't tell you what they're doing with all this and that you think that you're getting wi-fi but instead you are you you can get wi-fi at the kiosk but that also means they know who, who you are and what you're buying and then they sell things to you i mean this isn't to me the way to go virtual public space the reason I, I wanted to give myself a minute to think about it i think virtual public space is really important there is no question that it has saved lots of people through covid and and virtual public space is real i think we have to start stop thinking that there is real and not real space there is nothing not real about the virtual i mean there is real virtual as well as sort of imaginary virtual i mean i i think that we need to think about the these the digital and the not digital maybe i i like the word physical really the physical and the digital worlds as hybrid i do think we're living in hybrid worlds how can we not when i'm talking to you over zoom and we're being mediated by a private company that is deciding on the quality and you, you know and how, how can you not say that's real my representation to you is is through the internet it's digital yes i'm not really there okay so I think that the future of digital public space is going to be important, especially in a world like we're in now with COVID. On the other hand, I have been attending lots and lots of workshops, seeing other research, listening to other researchers and doing my own research, that there is definitely a difference between virtual public space and what can happen and physical public space. And I and where they intersect, I think, is very interesting. You know, protests using digital public space to get people together on Facebook to get them to, you know, it's through Facebook. You know, imagine Facebook as a place. You know, it's a place and that people come together and then they move to the real place. You you cannot separate it, right? I, I, so, so the question is, what do I think? But at the same time, I think the evidence is also showing us that there is something about being with people physically embodied is different than not being embodied. That the smell, sound, body senses of people are important. And we don't know how important, except that during COVID, people have suffered so much, even when they had virtual public spaces. And this is what I'm now going to study and turn, I mean, I think this is really important. Early in my work, ah, the medical anthropology and the baboons. I have always thought that embodied space was important. I'm a swimmer and you can't get in the pool and swim without thinking I don't know how, if you're a swimmer, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not a swimmer <laughs> or a dancer, that, that the body knows, has knowledge that is not mind. We are mind-body connected and we are very sensory. And we are, we were, we are animals. And that 
I think what we have to tease out of the virtual public space versus physical space, I'm not, I'm calling them both real. Do you understand? I mean, I'm not saying one is real and one is not because I'm uncomfortable with that. I, I think they're both real. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand. They're both yes. real places. Um, but, but certain things can only occur in one and the other. I can't be having this conversation with you in person because you're in Sweden without me flying. All right. And I think that's very beneficial. On the other hand, we would feel very differently about each other if we were in the same room. This conversation would be different. It would affect my body. The affective atmosphere would be different. And I and and people who've been studying religion um, have found like going to church online versus or going to a synagogue or going to a mosque. I'm not you know, is very different, uh, especially in Russia. There's some great research in Russia because Greek Orthodox Church, you know, you don't sit, you all stand. And it's tons of smells and sounds and talking and it's, it's really physical. And so you can watch it and do it in your home alone, but the experience of it is, is profoundly different. And what we do not know, and then I am absolutely passionate to find out and don't know that I will have time in, in my life is what is that difference and does it really matter and how much does it matter? What kinds of social ties can we create virtually? Obviously very strong ones for many people. Unfortunately, I'm not um, a um, millennial, which means I haven't lived half my life with that being my way of socializing. My experience on Facebook or Twitter is much more mechanical. I don't really check. I mean, I tweet, I tweet a lot, and, um, but I don't engage with a lot. I've been trying to do Reddit and follow Reddit <laughs> groups. And I'm teaching a course where we're going to do research on Facebook groups. So I'm learning a lot more. But just because of my generation, I'm not as embedded as someone, so I can't be the one to judge how important those relationships are. I can certainly see that they create relationships because of the because of what happened on January 6th, those relationships writ large, or uh, Tahir Square, or Occupy, or Black Lives Matter. Those communities are communities, they're real. But what is the sensation of all being together in physical space versus virtual space? I don't think we yeah. yet know. I, th I think, and I think it'll be different. Yeah, and I think you you really explain well explain the 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 virtual and the physical and how they come together and not separated. And now I would love to ask you about your book. When do you think you will be done and published? Be out. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be done right. It was supposed to be finished writing today. And today. I have today, yes, today. It's really sad, but it's half done. So, as I said, COVID has slowed all of us down. It really has had an impact on all of us. And um, teaching online has been hard. And I had to rethink the book because of uh, current things. There's no point in writing a book when, when the whole world turns upside down and not, not involving yourself in that. 
um, and makes it tricky. Um, but it'll probably be finished in another six months. I mean, you know, at the but certainly by the end of the year, and it will be out in 2022. Yeah, lovely. So I, I'm I'm happy that we had this uh, chat, and I'm very inspired. And I think you opened many new doors for us to think what is public space and why it's matter. And I would love that now when we're going to finish this episode that you give us the listeners three takeaway messages i know i that's let's see i'm not good at this um good public space is socially just public space and it is possible for us to to design create and fight for more socially just which means equitable and inclusive accessible for all that means ability gender race class culture sexual orientation i think that's really an important piece for the future two that we need to stop seeing virtue the virtual public space and physical public space is antithetical but to understand, I guess, their synergies. Because again, that's going to be the future. And if we're going to create an inclusive and just world, we have to take on the virtual. And there are, there are issues. I think there are issues with privatization and corporate control. I, I, we didn't go into them. But you're asking me for a takeaway, not just from my research. But I, you know, things I'm thinking about for the future. I think this we have to pay attention and and your question about is it different i i think we need to understand what the differences are i i think it's going to be critical to societies all societies to understand the differences and as human beings and as uh cyborgs as as we're hybrids even in the poorest nations people are attached to their phone or some kind of prosthetic uh, in fact, the, the, the increase in communication in the world has been th through this, this infrastructure, this new infrastructure. And three, you know, public space matters for so much and that it provides an infrastructure for all cities to have the kinds of social, economic, financial, political goods that we all wish for, for all people. And that by really attending to our public spaces in a serious way, taking them seriously, treating them seriously, funding them, understanding them, researching them, um, making them better, making them more just, that we can transform cities essentially from the neighborhood up necessarily from the smart down whether or not we use technology as i said because that would be my fourth that technology does not solve inequality or the structural elements the pieces that structure our societies and worlds and technology will only exacerbate it so it doesn't make our struggle for understanding that go away that's amazing. And you, you told me that you didn't prepare for these messages. 
So the last question is gonna be you asking us, the listeners, one question. What can each of you do to contribute to the public spaces in your world? Can you go out and try to understand them better? Can you try to figure out if your local is unjust? Can you even enlist yourself in trying to begin to promote it? Because to have the kind of world I'm imagining, I need all of you. Very interesting question. Well, thank you, thank you, really, thank you so much, Seth, for the really good and interesting conversation. I'm happy to talk to you. All right, thank you so much. And hopefully, see you in Stockholm. I hope I'm 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 vaccinated, so I'm ready to nice, roll. Nice, nice. So soon, <laughs> hopefully soon. Soon. Yeah. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you to the center. Um, I'm really excited to see this podcast come out and see if people answer me. Sure. Thank you. So see, let's say see you in Stockholm. Okay. See you in Stockholm. Bye. Bye. Hey. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I hope you really enjoy this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.